This talk was recorded at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles and is freely offered for your enjoyment. For more information, please visit againstthestream.org. Well, I was surprised a couple days ago that I was speaking today because I had forgot that uh, I was supposed to do that. I've been on the road for uh, about three weeks and I've been integrating back into L.A. after being on the road. But it all started a couple months ago. Uh, <clears throat> my, my brother called me up and said, uh, you really should see Mom because uh, she's getting old. And, and he's right, she's 84, and uh, she doesn't think that's too old yet, but, uh, but she is. So I arranged to take June off and uh, didn't have any commitments and had enough money in the bank. And I thought I'd do a road trip. I hadn't done a road trip in a while. And uh, uh, the last memorable road trip I did uh, was in 2001, and that was on my motorcycle. And I went to Wisconsin and back. So it was about 5,000 miles. And uh, I did it without a cell phone and uh, alone and um, with a whole lot of snacks on the back so I could stop and eat along the way. And it worked out fine. Uh, uh, it, was, um, it was a good trip. So I, I thought to myself, well, maybe I should get an audio book to listen to on the road. So I did. I got this one. This is called um, Zen and Now. Zen and Now. And, and what it is, Mark Richardson um, read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance years ago. And he wanted to experience that trip himself that Robert Piercing did with his son Chris. So this is his journey of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And he, for the most part, did the same roads and found a lot of the same people who were mentioned in the book. Of course, they're much older now, and somewhat they're sort of celebrities because people read, keep reading the book and they want to meet these people. So it was a wonderful journey uh, in the car and also in my head because that's one of my favorite books. I've, I've read the book itself a couple times and listened to the audio book a couple times. And if you have to be in the car for 10 hours, there's no better book than Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So I wanted to put this journey into context, a Buddhist context, and I thought what we could talk about today is the, are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. Um, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So, on the road, there's a lot of impermanence. You're just passing through, and you're looking at people who are just living their lives in the way they normally live their lives, and it's fascinating how creative people can be to make a living. You know, especially these little roadside rest stops, and they have the little food and the Gatorade for four dollars, and you know, just go whoa, you know. <laughs> but they're making their living, and and they're and they're into small talk, and they're doing that kind of stuff as well. Um, and and so your job is just to sort of keep going, and you sort of keep going through all these things. So I, I went through the uh, um, 
Utah, 80 miles an hour, post his speed limit. Of course, I'd go 85, but 80 miles an hour. How cool is that? And then you get like Nebraska, and it's 75. So you can really make some good time. And I'm driving, and then I get to Minnesota. And I'm just horrified. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Minnesota in the spring. It's beautiful. But the problem with Minnesota in the spring is the carnage. The most beautiful, magnificent animals are just strewn along the highway. Hit, killed, mutilated. And there you are, thinking this is just going to be a joyful journey, and you just see death and destruction everywhere. And if that's not bad enough, there are mosquitoes. <laughs> Big ones that just want to eat you. You know? So I'm looking around, and I'm looking at the dead porcupines, and I'm looking at the dead deer, and the raccoons, and the skunks, and even some birds got killed. And I'm just going, my gosh. So I started doing blessings. I started to bless them. I, I wish them a happy and successful rebirth. Not in Minnesota, but just, <laughs> you know, just any place else. <laughs> and, and after a while, I just, I needed to put it into a proper context because I was really sad. And I haven't even seen my mom yet, you know? And I'm thinking, what's she going to be like if this is the road leading to her house, you know? And, and so I needed to put it into proper context, so I went to Buddhism. I said, what does Buddhism have to say about all this stuff? And, and what they have to say is profound. So first you're really sad, and then sometimes you just want to cry, because life is not fair, and all these little creatures are dying left and right. And then you read the words of the Buddha, and, and he is so profound in his insight and in how it all works. He says, seeing with wisdom the end of life in others, and comparing this to a lamp, kept in a windy place. One should meditate on death. Just as in this world, beings who once enjoyed great prosperity will die, even so one day I will die too. Death will indeed come to me. This death has come along with birth. Therefore, like an executioner, death always seeks an opportunity to destroy Life without hating for a moment and ever keen on, pardon, life without halting for a moment and ever keen on moving runs like the sun that hastens to set after its rise. This life comes to an end like a streak of lightning, a bubble of water, a dewdrop on a leaf. Like an enemy intent on killing, death can never be avoided. If death could if death could come in an instant to the Buddhas, endowed with great glory, prowess, merits, supernormal powers and wisdom, what could be said about me? Dying every instant, I shall die within the twinkling of an eye, for want of food, or through internal ailments, or through external injuries. How profound is that? So, what I was seeing, of course, was just very natural. And, and the sadness came in the unfairness of life. And the unfairness of life, of course, starts at birth. And it's all downhill from there, you know, <laughs> according to Buddhism. So in, in this three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, the very first aspect is impermanence. Can you see the impermanence in the world? Can you see the impermanence in your life? Can you look in the mirror and see the impermanence of yourself? 
On the journey in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Piercig took his son Chris on a motorcycle trip with his friends, uh, uh, a man and a woman, and, and, uh, and they had a BMW. They had this wonderful German engineered motorcycle, which still exists today. It's somebody bought it, it's in a shed. There's a picture on this website I'll tell you about. And, and Robert Piercing had a Honda Superhawk, and, and, which was fine, but compared to the BMW, you know it lacked a little quality, perhaps. Or at least it lacked German engineering. And, uh, and so they were riding along, and in the story, there, there needed to be somebody else there. So it was Chris and his friends on the BMW, and then it was him. And then Phaedrus shows up. Phaedrus. Now, Phaedrus is a, a mythic person. Uh, I think it's in Greek mythology. And Phaedrus represented who the narrator used to be, who Robert Piercig used to be. And apparently, Robert Piercig was a genius. He was a certified genius, and he was a teacher for a while in Bozeman, Montana. And, and he was teaching a class, and one of his fellow teachers came in and said, I, I hope this class is, is, is a quality class. And you know what happened to Robert Piercig? Because of that, he went insane. He went insane. He had 28, count them, 28 electroshock therapies to break him out of his insanity. And so the person before the electroshock therapies in the story is Phaedrus. And now Phaedrus keeps appearing as a ghost of who he used to be. And Phaedrus has a different way of looking at things and has a different understanding because he was there before and Robert wasn't. Robert sort of appeared after Phaedrus died because of the electroshock therapy. So now we have this this sort of duality of personality, but we also have this tension that's created. And Chris now is starting to find out about Phaedrus, his father, who he used to be. And it got me to thinking, you know, who did I used to be? How many different people have I been? Are, are my ghosts still there? And, 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 and how would I feel about visiting places I used to live uh, as another person, you know, as a teenager, as a high school person. Well, on my journey, I was able to go to Onarga, Illinois. Now, if you've ever heard of Onarga, Illinois, I'll be very surprised. It's a town of like 700 people, and, and their main uh, industry is, is gardening and nursery, and they grow a lot of stuff there. And it, it doesn't even have a stoplight, it has a stop sign. And it has this one row of old buildings, that's the downtown, and this, and this and it's interesting place. But in this town used to be a military school. And I got to go there for two years. How lucky was I? At the time, not very lucky, but in reflection I thought it, it was a... So I, I wanted to go see the old military school. I was there in 1967-1966. So it was a while ago, and I wanted to see if the person today was going to look at it the same way as a teenager back then. 
Well, it's, it's not a military school any longer. It's now called Onarga Academy. And they tore down the dormitory and, and had this new dormitory with office structure. And what Onarga Academy is today is a place for boys who are aggressive and have sexuality issues. There's a lot of therapists and all those kind of people. Well, it's pretty much a military school in a way. We were all there for various reasons. We didn't have that kind of, uh, um, we didn't have those kind of teachers. We had military teachers who gave us discipline instead of giving us counseling. But we were all there, and I, and I got on my car, and I sort of, and I realized how small this place was. You know, it wasn't as big as it. I remember it, and they had cobblestone streets, and there was the, or there was the uh, gymnasium which we had the, the prom in, and, and that was really old now. And, and before it was an, an Oregon military school, you know, this was a seminary for Christians. So it has a long history starting back in the 1800s. But the person who was walking those streets today was much different. And I thought to myself, how many times have I died in this lifetime? You know, why was I asked to commit suicide? Over and over and over again. And so... It, it came to me that, that my life has been a constant state of suicide. My job was to kill the person who didn't know. And so my mother started with me early, and she said, you got to have to learn how to read and write, and I'm going to help you learn some language, and we're going to get some words. So I'm going to have to kill the person who doesn't know how to read or speak and create the person who does. And so all along, I was dying and dying into more and more knowledge. And uh, then I went into school, and, it, and, it, and you have to die all the time in school. You got the test to prove that you died and died well, because now you know these new things. And, and then you have relationships, and you have to die with every relationship so you can have a better relationship next time. And you just keep dying and dying, and it's really painful and confusing. And so I had died a million times, and, and all these ghosts were sort of traveling with me as I went to relive my past in a way. And, 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 and then I went to see my mom, and, and she's half the person she used to be, literally. She, she's lost half her body weight. She used to be five and nine, and now she's sort of hunched over. Still smoked. She smoked for 70 years, and she still smokes. You know, I was telling Holly, it's $10 a pack in Wisconsin, $100 a carton. And every day she pulls out that 10 bucks for that pack of cigarettes. But she takes oxygen, too. She has this oxygen thing in her nose and a cigarette in her hand. And you're just going, Mom, I'd like to tell you to stop smoking, but you know what? Would it make her life any better to stop smoking at this point? Probably not. That person will not die until the body dies, the person that smokes. But all of you who have quit smoking or quit a habit realize you had to kill the person that had the habit in order for the person who didn't have the habit to arise like the phoenix and be the next you. So I don't think she has enough time to kill the smoker, even with the oxygen and the way she looks and that kind of thing. But here I was, the son, coming back. So I was, used to be the teenage son and the infant son and the middle-aged son, and now I'm the old-age son, <coughs> looking at old-age mom. And it's just sad to see your parents age and have to die. And so it was sort of like I was going to see her to say, you know, it's really been nice being with you, 
but I realize you're going to have to die one day, and I just want to say goodbye. But I couldn't say those things because it was the present moment, and I went out and got her a fruit salad, and, and she wanted this, and I went out and got her that. So it wasn't like I was there to see her die. It was like I was there to sort of help her live in the present moment, you know. But it's, it's, it's a tough one. So I'm thinking to myself, is life really this uncomfortable? You know, and, and is it because of all this impermanence that I've seen on the road and seen in my life? And did the Buddha talk to me about the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom? The first one being, you know, everything's impermanent and always changes and all the good turns into bad and ultimately the bad might turn into good, but all the young turn into old. And, and because of that, everything is ultimately unsatisfactory. So the Minnesota is ultimately unsatisfactory. My mom is ultimately unsatisfactory because she has to leave one day and never come back again. And my car was very satisfactory on the trip, but one day that too will be unsatisfactory. And so there was this general sense of sadness in this trip. Everybody said, how was your vacation? I'm like, well, it wasn't really a vacation. It was just sort of a reassessment of life. It was sort of checking in with everybody. How are they doing? Are you still alive? Really good to see you. I know you'll be dead soon. It was sort of that kind of thing. And, and, and then you start evaluating yourself. And you start to see what you want to do and where you want to go with your life. Now, I'm really lucky in my life because I'm doing exactly, I guess, what I'm supposed to be doing. Because it's, you know, I, I'm not making a lot of money. I have a sort of a simple life. I have a little more flexibility than some people. And to be on the road and to be in all these different environments of city and town and state, everybody is insane out there. <laughs> you know, and, and I thought the little Buddhist center where I live, it was insane. But it's a piece of cake compared to what's happening out there. And everybody's just chasing their dreams or trying to survive or trying to avoid a catastrophe of some sort. And, and I thought to myself, how lucky am I that, that my lifestyle is so small that I can live on just a few hundred bucks a month. And, and I talked to people that their lifestyle required four, five, six thousand dollars a month just to meet, have ends meet. I'm like, whoa, that's really hard to downsize from that, you know? But for me, I'm just happy to get a hundred bucks. I, I can live a whole week and live well with a hundred bucks. I'm like, whoa, how lucky am I? And, and all the people that encouraged me to go visit mom and, and say, okay, this is what you need to do because you're a son. I'm so lucky that I had those people in my life who realized that that was important and allowed me to realize how important it was too. So if you haven't seen your parents in a while, you might want to do a road trip. And this is a really good CD to listen to. But now we come to this sort of final phase, which was the hardest phase of all for me to understand initially, and perhaps for Robert Pearson as well. What was that problem with his quality? Why did he go insane thinking about quality? Why did he have to have 28 electroshock therapies? Because the word quality was mentioned in the sentence, and he was trying to apply it to his life. What does quality mean to us? And how do we find out about quality? Well, quality turns out to be what is the essence of stuff? What is the soul of stuff? You know, does anything really have a soul? 
And if it does have a soul, is that where the quality resides? Is, is that the true nature of the thing we're talking about, this quality? You know, what is the true nature of a Mercedes-Benz? <laughs> well, if you ask people who appreciate that craftsmanship that goes into Mercedes-Benz, they will be able to tell you what the quality is. And they'll be able to tell you why they spent $50,000 for that quality. But if you ask them where it lives, where does it reside in their Mercedes? Can you point that out to me? What color is it? What color is the quality? How much does the quality weigh? Can you, can you spot it if you look at the car? Or do you have to open up the car? Or do you have to take the car apart? And is it in one of the pieces, the quality? And if you have a quality class, what makes that class have quality? Where does that quality reside? And in thinking about that from a non-Buddhist perspective, it would drive you nuts. Because you start to look at everything that's supposed to have quality and nothing exists in the way you think it does. That you can't take a car apart into its 10,000 pieces and find the quality of the car. And you can't take yourself apart intellectually or emotionally or physically and to find the quality of who you are. You know, and the, and the Buddha was, was pretty cruel in the way he described it and the way he just sort of gently encouraged you to investigate, you know, what the quality is. And, and, and of course, what, we're, what we talk about in Buddhism is, is in early Buddhism, anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A, anatta, not self. In Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about emptiness, you know. Where does the emptiness reside? Where does the not-self reside? Can we find it? Can we locate it? And as it turns out, we can. And that's like the, the next part of the puzzle. So you look at the world, and everything is changing all the time. And then you see, because of the, all that change, everything is really unsatisfactory. And there's a certain level of sadness that goes on. And, and then you start to investigate the world itself, and you say, well, what is the original essence of the world? What does all this mean? Now I'm going to digress for a moment here and talk about Catholics, because I like Catholics. And there's a wonderful documentary called The Big Silence. Anybody heard of The Big Silence? Okay. Yes. Uh, I watched it online, and it's fantastic. It, it talks about how important silence is. And the very thing we did before the talk was to sit in silence together. <clears throat> this allows us to experience our life and life in general in a very interesting way, a very important way. And in the big silence, the idea was to take these five people and put them into silence, in a Christian context, in a God context. And they were to do exercises of prayer and walking and talking and waiting to hear God or to find God. Now, I was fascinated by this, and I sent this link out to some people, and, um, and some people really appreciated it, other people didn't want the link at all. I thought, oh, wasn't that interesting? But of the five people, you know, only a couple of them found God, and the rest found silence. I'm thinking, what a Buddhist concept that is, to find silence, and what does that mean? Well, they were able to to sit and go beyond their intellect, perhaps, perhaps, and come to this intuitive place, this, this, this intuition that we've all lost because our intellect is so strong 
and aggressive in understanding the world in all its many paradigms and maps that, that we, we, we forgot how it is to know rather than to understand. And, I, and I, I use those words specifically to indicate understanding is sort of an intellectual aspect and knowing is sort of an intuitive aspect. So they started to know. They started to know, but they didn't equate that with God or relationship or Christianity necessarily. But they started to know in a different way as a human being. This is how I'm interpreting it. And, and I thought to myself, when I first started to meditate, my first meditation teacher said, you know, in our life, we're really taught to grow and learn and understand uh, in the middle and in the beginning, but not so much in the end. Because once we've grown and understood enough, then we become sort of products of our community, and our job is to produce and consume, but not necessarily to, to grow anymore, because we've grown enough to be useful in the community. And, and, and that's all our community wants us to do. They only want us to be useful in the community, it seems to me. And this is not a conspiracy theory in our credit. It's just sort of going, okay, they don't really want us to reach our full potential because that may not be good for the market. If everybody reached their full potential as a human being, whoa, would any of us really work anymore? <laughs> or consume as much as we do? Maybe not, maybe not. And so my meditation teacher used to say, we've we got to hit the cushion, and we've got to sit, and we have to put that growth in overdrive. Because now nobody in our life is encouraging us to grow except the Buddha and our practice. And we need to grow as human beings, but in a different way, not intellectually. Though there are a lot of wonderful suttas and philosophical texts that have been written about Buddhism, and I still enjoy reading those, and I feel like that helps me understand but it doesn't help me now. So I'm sitting, and I'm sitting, and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I start to become intelligent in a way that I hadn't been before. And I was never very intelligent, and, and, but I always felt I had potential. <laughs> I just didn't realize it. And so what happened in my meditation practice is it allowed me to sort of fulfill that potential and, and what it did for me was this. It allowed me to see how things are connected. And now that may not sound very profound, and it may not sound intelligent at all. But if you meditate in silence long enough, you start seeing the connection of things. And what did the Buddha tell us about the ultimate reality of the world? Everything is interconnected and interdependent. And it's the intellect that separates us from that. That the intellect's important in order to change the course of rivers and build bridges and drive cars. But it separates us in 10,000 different ways from our natural environment. And as we sit in peace, as we sit in silence, what happens is the intellect starts to, to wind down a bit. And now the intuition starts to ramp itself up a little bit, and we start to see how all these things are connected. And, and people can tell you stories or they can relate some kind of new information, and you're able to see how that connects to everything after a while. And people go, wow, you're really smart. And you go, no, I just sit for long periods of time and do nothing. And they go, oh, okay. 
<laughs> but it's, it's sort of that intuitive knowing of how stuff is. And that allows us to get to the place of deathlessness, non-death. It's the intellect that has to die. It's the intellect that's afraid of change. Because change poses a problem of survival. Now I've got to learn a new operating system. Now I've got to get a new browser. Now there's a new virus out there. And we're always learning and we're always getting ready for the next problem. But if we, if we visit that intuitive portion of our mind, that wasn't born. That's always been there. And that doesn't have to die. But the intellect dies and the body dies. And so what I was seeing on the road was I was seeing a whole lot of death. And my intellect was trying to put it into some kind of perspective. And, and yet, does anything really die? Or is it simply another transition? You know, another lifetime. Another way of existing in the world. You know, and even though we get attached to this existence, this existence has died a billion times already. In this very lifetime, we've died a billion times, and, and we keep resurrecting every moment. And there's something that connects all those deaths and rebirths. There's there's something there, and and that connection that allows us to migrate from birth to birth to birth to birth, or death to death, that may be what our quality is. Perhaps. But it would be nothing more than connection. It would be nothing more than the way we're connected to everything we've been and everything we're going to be. And in this, in this place of not-self, what we find, nothing stands independently, everything is connected, and interdependent and in process. So when I came back to the center, I was there for a day, and all of a sudden, Rainbow Warrior appeared. Now, Rainbow Warrior is not a figment of my imagination. Rainbow <laughs> Warrior is a cat. And Rainbow Warrior, the cat, came to visit us about a year and a half ago and never left. And, and it turns out to be a she who I just assumed was fixed because she had been um, without child for a year and a half, but all of a sudden Rainbow Warrior had a child. So we're going to have to take her to get fixed in the future. And, and out of her little litter, one survived, and she had the little litter across the alley between a wall and a building. It was about six inches of space. And somehow she crawled in there and had her litter, and it's been there for weeks and weeks, and was there when I left. But I came back, and the day after I came back, Rainbow Warrior brought her little daughter, I'm assuming, with her. And now they both live in the backyard again. And she's the cutest little thing, you know? And, and they play, and then when Rainbow Warrior leaves, she goes to hide, and then Mom comes back and she comes out. So after being on the road and seeing death and destruction and carnage everywhere I looked, to come back to the center and see the beginning, you know, again, it, 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 it allows me to, to see and understand the, the fact that it is a cycle that we're in. And we're changing and growing and dying in every moment. 
and it's represented in, in nature all around us. And to be sad about the death and to be happy about the birth. And if we come to a place of peace with both, that understanding allows us to see that all those things are connected in a very special way. So when you get to that place in your practice where you see the connection of all things, then you can say to yourself, I might be enlightened. Cool. I'm not there yet, but I'm starting to see some of the connections. And, and when we finally do see all the connections, then we come to a place of compassion for all those people and creatures out there who consider themselves to be separate and not connected and lonely and only suffering from aloneness. And yet even in aloneness, we're still connected to all things all the time. So it wasn't eye-opening, this, this journey I went on, but it was heart-opening. And unfortunately, the heart is going to break over and over and over again. And every time it breaks, there's another chance to reconnect with the world around you in a very special way. So I changed my phone plan, 25 bucks now, unlimited phone calls on my landline, and I talk to mom every day. I say, hi mom, how are you? And right now we're just talking about weather. It's sunny in Wisconsin, just to let you know. She's going to go see the doctor on Monday. She's going to have, you know, and, and in those few moments that I'm on the phone with her, I feel the connection again. And, and, and there's nothing I can do except be there for her and perhaps with her. And I told her if she needs me to come back, the car just needs an oil change and I'm ready to go. I hate flying, but another road trip might be in order. I might learn something else. Does anybody have any comments on what I've said today? Or, uh, yeah. Does the whole entire dis uh, discussion of quality, um, does it have any merit at all? Because I, I, we talked, when I first read that book way back in the day, me and my friends were like, really talked about that a lot. Yeah. And, like, we felt like if certain things are paid more attention to, and there's more careful uh, detail, more... Um, focus on detail, like say a pair of jeans, for example, a pair of jeans that's going to last 30 years, you know, because there was so much, um, you know, detail in the building of the jeans there, like, I don't know, that's a bad example, but it, it, does it even warrant any discussion at all, or any thought about whether there is quality or not, or does the interconnectedness of everything kind of... Well, I, I think at some level, you know, our, our, the marketplace works on quality, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, if it has quality, you can charge more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And and and, um, and and then you know people often talk about the quality of their life. You know, I you know do you have you know and and you sort of go okay. So I, I think it's simply assumed that there is quality, and and that and that's about as far as people ever go. But I, the feeling I had about the book was that he really wanted to investigate what it meant and where it lived, and he kept coming up empty. You know, it, it wasn't where it was supposed to be, and and so. So what does that mean? And, and he eventually got into Zen and actually helped st start a, a Zen uh, center. I'm, I forget what state it was in. It wasn't in California, but he started a Zen center and he, and he began practicing. And his son, Chris, uh, was a Zen person as well until he was, he was killed, unfortunately, outside the Zen center of uh, San Francisco at the age of 23. They tried to rob him and, uh, 
he didn't have any money and they killed him. Uh, but I, I think what he saw was, was something that other people hadn't seen. Uh, that, that he saw that there was an emptiness aspect and quality. Robert Pearson. And, and, and I, that might have taken his intellect out. Because, you know, the koans of Zen are the questions that can't be answered intellectually. Like, what's the sound of one hand? And intellectually, you can diagnose that, critique it, tear it apart, and really come up with nothing. Mm-hmm. But, but apparently, intuitively, there's a knowing what that means. And, and so I, I think his intellect just sort of overloaded, perhaps, with the Which idea. is what the book talks about over and over again. It's like the intuitive nature of human beings to know something rather than... Does it have anything to do with interconnectedness? Or, I mean, how would you relate it back to Buddhism in a stronger way? Like, oh. does quality even matter? Like, exactly. Well, the quality is not there because nothing exists independently. So the, the, it's the illusion of independence that we have as a self as well. So the interconnectedness and interdependence, what that is, is that the, that's the emptiness of quality. That because nothing stands apart from anything else, quality can't exist in the way we think it does. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it helps a lot. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I don't know if I, I really explored that avenue yet. Yeah. Like the interdependence and the fact that, yeah, I mean, the genes only relate to me in quality because someone else might find quality inside of something else. That well, as, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it with a piece of paper, he, he can see the, 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 the tree, he can see the sunlight, you know, he can see the roots of the tree, he can see the people who made the paper, he can see the ink and the printing. And the, so, so is a book ever only a book, or is it always connected to all the things that, you know, and then the book is destroyed and turns into something else. So that kind of interconnectedness is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then to apply it to yourself... That that's the final goal, and and what happens when you apply it to yourself is you end your suffering because there's no one to suffer, and and there can't be any suffering in the world because uh, suffering is not independent from everything else. But there can't be any happiness in the world either, which a lot of people don't want to give up. See, so, so you sort of come to this place of, wow, you know, nothing exists in the way we think it does because everything exists all together, all the time. So this happiness and this sadness and this pain and this pleasure is simply a phenomenon that's part of the process of this interconnectedness. But it's never your pain. It's never your happiness. Because there's no you there to feel it or to be it. So it's, it's sort of a radical way of looking at, you know, the end result of nirvana, you know, the end of independence. Uh, but if you really truly want to end your suffering, you have to end the person who's suffering. Because is there suffering in the world? I don't think so. There, are, and again, I hate to say it that way, but but if you look at all the problems in the world, it is our reaction to those problems that causes the suffering. So suffering happens because of the way we experience the world. And our job at one level is to experience the world in a different way. And that would end our suffering. So how do you experience the world in a different way? Well, you, you understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And, and that allows us to adjust the way we experience the world. That the world is filled with suffering because it's inside of us not that it's in the world. 
if I tried to find suffering in the world, what color would I look for? What shape would I look for? How much does it weigh? That kind of stuff. And if I tried to find happiness in the world, I could, I could say the same thing. But when I look inside, I see my reaction to the world and I see suffering. My reaction to the deer on the side of the road in Minnesota was suffering. It was sad and profound. But in looking at the deer in the road, was there a deer? Was there a road? Was there a tree? Those are concepts that I use to understand the world around me. And um, those concepts create uh, an internal reality that allows me to experience the world in a human way. Whoa. But <laughs> when you go through all that stuff, you go, okay, I, I got it now, maybe. But then, of course, we keep forgetting, and it does become a deer, and it does become the road. So now we sit in silence for a while. And all those deers and all those roads and all those words and concepts sort of fall away a little bit, and we come to this place of, of, of true silence without discursive thought sometimes. And, and what does our world consist of then? Well, it consists of uh, nothing or everything. Nothing and everything actually has pretty much the same definition. So you go, oh, okay, so now my internal reality is filled with nothing or everything. And so the Catholic, in their interpretation of experience, would say, God. And the Buddhist would say, empty. So if God is the fullness, Buddhism is after the emptiness. Now, uh, a Catholic once told me that in meditation, you get to a place where everything is empty, and then you look in the corner, and something exists. There's someone over there. And it could be God. And, and I told this Catholic nun that I've looked in the corners, and I haven't found anybody yet, but there could be somebody over there. But if there was somebody over there, I might think it's, you know, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. I might give it a different interpretation because, because God in Buddhism doesn't always work. Though most Buddhists I know believe in God, which is fine. Yes? Can I ask something? What about uh, meaning? And, uh, meaning? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think uh, there must be a source of something that gives everything meaning. And, and you know, yeah. the reason everything exists. No, but we just a part of the whole interconnectedness and this, you know, it's all, if you break it down, it's all, this is the way it works, fine. But, you know... This, but what if it's just you? The spark of life, what's that? Yeah, it's just me, but there's some, like, like the gas that you have to put in the tank to make it all work, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, and we should, you know... I'm you know, it, it could be, it could be whatever you think it's going to be. But it doesn't, it's not a kind, you know... I don't believe that God is a concept and all yeah. these you know, ideas people have about uh -huh. God. And, but there must be some kind of underlying universe or there's something kind of you know, life power. That, you know, it's just that. Well, there could be. Yeah, I mean, if you prefer to think that way, it makes it more comfortable about the whole thing. But maybe, maybe that life force, force and the spark, is in you. Yeah, well, then I'm God. <laughs> maybe so. We create our reality moment by moment, our universe moment by moment. Yeah. I've often thought that Buddhists are like cats. We, we sit alone together. 
Each of us has our own little reality and universe inside ourselves. And yet somehow we bring all these universes together for a few moments on a Sunday. And you go, whoa. And, and we, there's a collective sort of thing happening here. Is there a spark to that? There but, could be. Yeah, but it's much deeper. I mean, if you, if you have all the emptiness and everything is just explained in Bruce's uh, theory, and, and everything that explaining is over, and there's, that's the way it works, and this is it, but why is it all there, and why do we love, especially power, and why do we want to live, why there's life, why do things grow, and all these questions, you know. Yeah. But there must be something that powers all and, and what did the Buddha do when all those questions were asked of him? He didn't say, because his teachings were designed to end suffering. <laughs> but, right? I mean, really. But, but if you're not suffering, then, then if you go to the Christians and say, what's the underlying? They'll tell you. If you go to the Hindus and say, hey, what is it? They, they have something to tell you too. Buddhism doesn't have something to tell us about that. It doesn't deny the fact that there could be something, but they don't name it, they don't give it a definition, they don't tell you it's even important. That's what I like. You know, I don't like any definitions of a, of a universe, God, or whatever it is. It's, it kills it because the world's separated again. Because Absolutely. Separated again. It makes us separate, exactly. So can we sit in the mystery? I <laughs> <laughs> And, and what do we learn from that? You know, sitting in the mystery of not having to know. Intellectually. But, but understanding it or knowing it intuitively. Yeah. What is you know. I think you're right. But, that, but as, and as soon as you name it, you don't know it, do you? Yeah. You might understand it, but you don't know it. Exactly. So, so, I don't know. That's the best question. Maybe that's the best answer. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Hi. Um, uh, my mom is dying, and uh, mm. she has uh, lung cancer. She never spoke to her life, but I'm like your mom. Yeah, <laughs> 70 uh, years of my mom, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, and one thing I got from what you were saying is you were maybe thinking about, well, I'm just here with her, uh, and I don't really talk to her about any kind of profound type things. It's just all kind of. Matter of fact, and I guess um, it's a little bit like that when I talk with my mom too. But I did send her a letter, and I said it, um, that I loved her and, and uh, thank you. And then I uh, sent. Uh, I try not to cry too much. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, and I said different things that I was thankful for. Yeah. Um, not everything, of course, but different things. And, some of them were funny, and some of them were um, uh, serious. And so, uh, uh, but it was good as a way to uh, communicate. Uh, um, non-trivial, non-superficial uh, things. Just fine, too. Like you said, just being here is, 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 is good. Yeah. Um, but it's also nice to say what you live and say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and um, in, in my family, it's difficult to do that because uh, my mother um, was divorced at a very, when I was young and went back to school and had a couple jobs and raised four kids and very independent. 
very strong and didn't like to show much emotion. She didn't do, we don't hug each other, we don't kiss each other, we don't even touch each other very much, you know. And so we have, she's, she, so she's made her, her offspring pretty independent. And, um, and, 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 and not wanting to make her uncomfortable, you know, um, it's sort of business as usual. But in that business as usual, there's a certain familiarity that makes her feel comfortable. You know, that her kids come and, and talk about the weather or talk about lunch and uh, not so much about her. And, and as I was leaving, she said, do you have any advice for me? And I said, I don't. How do you advise your mother? She's always advised you. And uh, so I didn't want to be presumptuous. I would have liked to have told her a few things. But I did bring her, though, and, and she's a Lutheran, you know. And so religiously, I have to be very careful and tiptoe through all the landmines out there. I brought her a Kwan Yin that was given to me by a friend who bought it in Taiwan and said, why don't you give this to your mother? This is, you know, the goddess image in Buddhism. And so, so mom has a little Kwan Yin by her bed now. And maybe Kwan Yin can talk to her. Maybe Kwan Yin can say the things I couldn't say. Or maybe just being there in her presence, you know, if she can look at that beautiful image of a, a feminine quality and strength and, and wisdom and go, yeah. So it, it is really tough. Um, I, I don't know of anything profound to say in, in those moments to the other person. When I help someone die, to talk to somebody who's dying, what the hell can you say that's going to have any meaning, you know? Because it's such a, a, a personal journey at that point that what they're going to do now in their own special way, we are, we're all going to die in our own unique way. And I think a lot of us have this idea that we'll be stoic or wise or, you know, <laughs> and not scream or yell and that kind of thing. But, but we all have this really unique way of letting go of everything forever. And, and a lot of the Christians are in relationship and they're going to meet the person they've been in relationship with in their whole practice, which could be God or Jesus or whoever is waiting at the pearly gates. To enter. And, and a Buddhist would say, well, you know, we don't, we're not going to meet anybody except maybe ourselves again, you know. So how do we let go of everything forever? What, what is our technique? And, and part of our technique is doing this on a Sunday morning, sitting together quietly for a half hour, letting everything go for that half hour. All the important things we wanted to do or say or be, we're going to just let those go for a half hour. How does it feel to let that go? Well, ironically, in letting all that stuff go, there's a certain level of peace and happiness that arises. So maybe for us, as we're faced with the dilemma of letting go of everything forever, we're going to find a certain sense of peace and happiness in, in the process of letting go. And remember the thousand or ten thousand times we sat on the cushion in the midst of all the sound and distractions of Los Angeles and practiced letting go. You know, And of course that means we're going to have to let go of our friends and our family and the golf clubs and VCR if we still have one. We have to let go of everything. And a lot of that stuff will be easy to let go of, but some of that stuff's going to be sort of hard. So this practice that we've 
uh, created for ourselves with the help of the Buddha and the Dharma allows us that really profound sense of uh, stillness in the midst of great tragedy or great happiness. And, and as I look at my mom, I'm, I'm seeing certain hints of acceptance in what's going on with her. And that is so Buddhist that she's, you know, she's just sort of sensing that something else is happening with her now. But I would never use that word with her, Buddhist, because she'd freak out. Maybe I could say it's so Lutheran, Mom. <laughs> you know? But I, I don't know. Moms are really tough. When, when my father passed away, it was sort of this guy-guy thing, you know? And he was stoic. And, um, and so he didn't want you to be involved in his you know, transition. He, he wanted to do it himself. But with mom, it's so much different. And um, so my brother and my sister and my other brother were all visiting her and helping her and, and sort of adjusting her lifestyle. And... Uh, and maybe one or two of us will go up and stay with her for a while, you know, uh, and, and just be with her. But not, but I don't know, advice, I wish I had something to, to say to her and I, that would make it better or worse or different. I think of just being there, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Thanks for sharing that, yeah. And it's something we all have to do if we live long enough, you know. We all have to do it. And there's no good workshops on it that I can find yet. <laughs> How to say goodbye to your parents, you know? It's a, it's, it's a tough one. Anybody else have anything you'd like to share? Okay. Well, I hope this wasn't too much of a downer today. But uh, I'm going to send Holly the, the picture of uh, a Rainbow Warrior with her kitten. Maybe she'll... So if you want to see the beginning of... Of life, it's I'll put it on Facebook. There we go. There we go. So you can see, yeah. yeah. So that's where I came home to, and it was nice. It put things in perspective for me. So quickly, loving kindness meditation, and then we'll uh, I'll have a good Sunday, and uh, yeah. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our pets, our brothers and sisters, our friends and family, all the people we don't know, all the people we don't like, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free. 
the fear struck fearless be may the grieving shed all grief may the sick find health relief You have just listened to a podcast from Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society. If you'd like to make a contribution to help support these teachings, please visit againstthestream.org.